don't settle for mediocrity. You've got to be expert. But if you find something that you really like, you will naturally become an expert because you're going to want to do more of it. If you're going to pick a career and make a mistake and you don't like it, switch. If you're not enjoying it, you're not going to be comfortable getting up in the morning and going to work. Had I picked dentistry, I would not be a very happy camper right now. I know that. Life can be pretty tough. We're told to balance our careers, family, health, finances, and everything else. But in today's fast-paced world, is that even possible? This is The Smiley Connection, a podcast produced by the Smiley Professionals Network. On this show, we aim to answer that very question by learning from those that are already doing it so that you can grow both professionally and personally. Hello and Yalimadad. It's Sony Qasim, your host. I realized I haven't yet shared what it is that I do when I'm not hosting The Smiley Connection. In my day job, I'm a news editor for a global media company. I knew at the age of 10 that I wanted a career in journalism, but people don't always know what it is that they want to do in life. And sometimes our career paths take us to different places we never thought we could go. That's exactly what happened with our guest, Caleb Gossam, the chief information officer at the Los Angeles Times. He's responsible for making sure that the news organization's IT runs smoothly. The C-suite executive left his post-college career up to chance, choosing to major in data processing while flipping through a catalog two days before he was required to make a decision. Now, Golub loves his job and says other young adults should have somewhat of a plan for what they want to do in life, though they shouldn't be afraid of changing paths. This episode is part two from my conversation with Golub. Here, he continues to recount how he got to the United States, talks about how a pivotal moment encouraged him to get an MBA, and shares his thoughts about the future of the journalism industry. But if you haven't heard part one, you may want to hit pause on this episode and go back to the previous one. You can catch up on his childhood in Pakistan and London and learn about how he landed his current role while volunteering as security during Diamond Jubilee. For the rest of you, we'll pick up where we left off, in London, right before Galib's mom decided it's time for Galib and his brother to join their uncle in Michigan. So I finished middle school, high school, so the equivalent of O-levels and A-levels in London. And when I got to A-levels, I was getting up there past high school. And now this is where not having parents around made it a little bit of a challenge because I could do whatever I wanted and school wasn't in the cards. And so my mom got a wind of it. My mom was still in Pakistan at the time. And she reached out to her brother who was in Michigan and said, here's what I need you to do. These kids are getting out of hand. They're not finishing school. I don't think they're getting the right attention. Can you sponsor them both and get them to the U.S. and have them finish school? That was all it was. Next thing I got was a phone call from my mom and my dad, who basically said, you're going to the States. So the first year my brother left, got to the States, got situated, was sponsored, got into school, got a job, and then sent for me a year later. Talib headed to the U.S. in 1982, a year after his brother and nearly 10 years after being in London. He got his education at the Grand Valley State University in Michigan, where he spent the first two years knocking out his core requirements while being unsure of what path he wanted to pursue. I was 
really dragging my feet on the major because I did not have mentors. I did not have anybody that I really felt that's really, really what I wanted to do. Um, of course, my father, my family had been in business and running big factories and plastics and flour and so on and so forth. But I didn't see that as a path for me in terms of taking over any of that stuff. I had no aspirations of really going back to Pakistan and, and leading that life. I liked the freedom. I liked the opportunities that were in front of me. But again, I was very ignorant of really what I wanted to do. And so the truth is, and not very glamorous, but my college counselor basically told me the end of the second year, you have to declare your major because you got to pick upper classes to really finish school. You have to pick a path. And I still didn't know. And I was procrastinating. She gave me the college course book and she said, here's the book, figure out what you want to do. By Monday, you're going to declare something. That was Friday, meaning Ghalib only had two days to pick a major, which would ultimately set the course of the rest of his time in college and thereafter. Honestly, I was so looking forward to weekends because this was my time to relax, go have some fun, go to the beach, hang out with a bunch of friends. And that weekend, we actually had planned to go to the beach. And so I took the college course book and it was Friday. In Michigan, Jamath Khan's was on Saturday because it was so far of a drive, it was a four-hour drive, very small community, so really not very much of a Jamath And so Friday night, I just wanted to get this thing over with. I grabbed the book, sat down, and I said, all right, we're going to make this easy. We're going to make it hard. It's a pretty thick book. I could go page by page. And I said, I just open the book and figure out whatever page it lands. We'll just pick that for now. We'll figure it out as it goes. It's an alphabetical course catalog. I happened to open through the book. It landed in the D's. The one side said dentistry. The other side said data processing. Now, I don't like dentists. And I didn't know what data processing was, but I read it. It seemed interesting. It was good enough for me. Made a bookmark. Took the book back, and that's how I landed on that career path. You know, computer science wasn't a thing then. It was more data processing, and it eventually grew to that. But that's kind of how I picked a career. Anybody listening to this podcast should not use this approach. <laughs> it was not the right way to do it. But, I mean, it worked out for you, right? Yeah, I wouldn't change it. I really, really fell into it. I loved it. I'm an analytical person by nature, so it was a good fit. Worked out great. There was a piece I forgot to mention, Aluma. My... Uncle, mom's brother, was involved in the early days of formulating Aluma. It was the first few years, and he was helping to document Aluma. And like I said, it was a new program, still trying to get all the kinks worked out. And Ferial and Mully were the two folks that actually put this overall program together. And Mehdi was the one who was going to videograph, videography, this whole thing. And so he invited me to go with him to Aluma camp the first year and the second year and so on and so forth. And it was over summer. I had nothing planned. And truth be told, I was really schlepping all the equipment and he was taking video of the entire program. So that was my exposure to Aluma. I loved it. Spent the average of three weeks or four weeks there and did that for the first five years. And that's how I got exposed to Los Angeles. Because the fourth and fifth year, I believe, of Aluma was in Ojai, California, which is where I came up 
in London. That's how I ended up in LA. After my undergrad, I packed up, hopped in my car, decided I wasn't coming back. I told my brother I was leaving <laughs> and then came to LA. Did the fifth year of Aloma and never went back. So you graduated from Michigan. You're in California and this is 86. What was your life in California? How did that begin? It was difficult. We won't argue that. It was hard. Again, reached out to our community. I had a couple of great friends. Their family took me in. I stayed with them for a couple of weeks. Right after that summer is when I moved down there. I graduated. And then the summer of 86 is when I'd gone to L.A. for the Aluma. So I finished that last program. And right after Aluma was done, I didn't want to go back to Michigan. My goal was to stay in California, find a job and pick up life from there. I spent two weeks with the family, the parents of my good friend that I met at the time. And in those two weeks, managed to get an apartment, got a job, was a part-time job, worked my tail off. That part-time job became a permanent job. And I worked there for five years. And then effectively moved on to the next job and so on and so forth. Several years later, Golub went back to school, attending the University of Phoenix in California for his MBA. And he got his MBA because of a conversation he had with the CIO in one of his previous jobs. I specifically did that MBA not because it was a career move for me. I did that because I used to work for a Japanese firm. And I was asked to go speak to the CIO at the time to get approval for a project that required a sizable funding. I think it was a million or two. And the CIO at the time was probably four levels above me, three other people between me and the CIO. And I was very uncomfortable about this. I knew him. I met him like in the hallways and stuff, but you know, it was among those people that I felt was not necessarily reachable. But I mustered the courage. My manager insisted I go talk to him. And so I did. I put together a presentation. I put together everything about this thing. I wanted to make sure I had every single question he could possibly ask me, I had an answer for it. And I went to the presentation. I got into it and about 10, 15 minutes into this conversation, CIO turned to me and said, listen, could you stop for one quick second? I have a question. And I stopped and he said, look, I approve your project, not because of what you're telling me, because I have faith in you. I said, I'm not approving it because of what you're telling me, because I don't understand a word you just spoke. I don't have a clue of what you've just said. So. I am going to trust you. I'm confident that you'll get this thing done. Go ahead, get it done. I think I understand it now. He asked me a few questions about how it would help the business and that type of thing. And that moment sat with me forever. And then one day I happened to be talking to some friends. This is just prior to me taking my MBA. And I realized that I, as a consultant, I used to go talk to all these CIOs and CFOs and CEOs to sell or explain what we're doing and what we're going to, how we're going to make things better. And I realized then that I had to speak in a language that they understood, not in IT, but in business terms. And then when I went back and took a look at what was their career path and what was their education path, and almost every single one of them had an MBA or had to have an MBA to get up there. 
So I decided I was going to do an MBA so I could understand their language, not because I didn't know my, I knew my subject matter. I could do circles around my subject matter. I just couldn't articulate it in terms of the English that they wanted to learn. How was it, how is it going to help the business? How is it going to help the financials? How are they going to turn a profit? What problem are they going to solve by me doing this great whiz bang solution? So that's why I did the NBA. So you've lived in so many countries and cities, and you must have learned a lot about different cultures and the way people live their life. Is there a vibe that you feel like you connect with the most? Yeah, I think my most formidable years were in London. And I think that's where a lot of my personality, I guess, was born. I was exposed to a fair bit of cultural differences as a bit of a melting pot. And then when I went to Michigan, it was very conservative. A lot of Dutch reform. There was little or no Jamaat kind of, so it was somewhat more pressed, if you will, harsh word, but it was very different. And I guess I missed the cultural diversity. I missed the Jamaat kind of, I missed the ability to enjoy different types of music and museums and just diversity wasn't in Michigan at the time, at least not where I was. Grand Rapids is nowhere near the next major city, which would have been Detroit or Chicago. So what keeps you motivated and inspired? I think what keeps me motivated and inspired is continuous learning. I'm confident. I don't know everything. I like, like we are in this digital age, there's so much to learn. Every time you think you've got it mastered, there's yet one more technology that pops up. There's one more regulatory compliance thing that you've got to solve for. And most everything today is being solved by technology. And so it's fun. I'm in an industry that you certainly cannot get bored. Yeah. So bringing it back to what you do now, I know that the news organizations have really struggled over the last decade to successfully shift from print to digital while maintaining strong bottom lines. Not everyone listening to this episode works in the journalism industry like you and I do. So to step back, what are the biggest problems that the journalism industry faces right now And how does your job help with that? Yeah, so I think you're right. The biggest challenge is really revenue, right? At the end of the day, pivoting from being a print organization for 138 years into digital is really what your consumer is looking for. You know, people are just not reading the newspaper anymore. And and it's historically an event that doesn't happen anymore. A lot of the millennials are consuming content very differently. And that has been the impetus for most newspaper publishing and entities going to the digital on the, onto transformation. We've done that. We've done a fair bit of work in transforming our business, not just from a digital standpoint. We look at it from a digital transition being a variety of products, not a single product. It's more of a journey and it's a constant evolution. We are pivoting from subscriptions on the newspaper to subscriptions on the digital side of things. We're also creating products on how is it that we can monetize digital assets that are not necessarily found on an app. So for example, we've got 138 years worth of content on history that we could make available electronically in some sort of PDF format. Same thing with photography. We've got photojournalists going around the city and state, country, internationally, 
creating all kinds of content. And we are now putting all those assets behind a asset management tool that then sits behind our CMS content management system. So that anybody that's writing something like, for example, some sort of pandemic, if you type the content correctly, you could actually look up pandemic and find all the previous stories. And now you're able to create content very, very quickly because today there's an expectation that news will be available within seconds or minutes because people are creating that on the fly. But when you're creating thought-provoking content, whether it's long form or short form, it has to have information and content, stats, history to be able to defend it. And so most of what we're doing now is creating content on the digital platform, trying to encourage our subscribers to pay for it. And that is really the big challenge today. Are there any thoughts about what the future of the journalism industry is? I think it'll always be there. I think there will always be a need for consumers to look to brands that they trust, brands that they believe in, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. And people also want to get a perspective on the news. They want to get a point of view. The opinion section tends to generate a fair bit of following. And I think the content will be delivered in different ways. Generating content is what we are in the business of. We're not in the business of creating newspapers. We're not in the business of creating apps. We are absolutely in the business of creating content. The delivery mechanism is what you're asking about. What will it look like tomorrow? But again, this really comes down to creating the very best content. The delivery mechanism is what is to be debated. Where is the best way to get it out there? And what does our consumer base want to see it on? I envision that our content will show up on microwave screens. It'll show up on refrigerator doors. It'll show up on wherever it is you want to see that content is where you're going to see it tomorrow. Yeah, I think this also says something about the intersection of not just like business and journalism, but AI and the media world. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we capture every bit of data, every bit of analytics, and we rifle through that every single day, trying to understand sentiment, trying to understand behavior, trying to understand what is it that our consumers really want? How much time are they spending on X, Y, and Z? How much effort are they responding to on various clicks? And it's part of education, again, on what it is that's going to help inform our writers of what these people are really interested in, what is it that they're spending most time reading, and what influences their involvement. Is it visual? Is it video? Is it audio? Is it just plain long form? And what time of day do they read it? Do they read snippets of it and what of the longer version in bed time? Uh, I think it's a, it's a very interesting time we live. What are your thoughts about the whole privacy aspect of it. Yeah, so we take that stuff incredibly seriously. There's, as you know, you're in the business as well. There's first-party data and you can get second, third-party. But to the extent that we get first-party data, we are highly bound to a number of compliance and regulatory requirements. So in Europe, we are very cognizant and aware of GDPR. In California in particular, which is not 
mandated by any of the other states quite yet, although California tends to be a bit of a leader in some of these things. We have CCPA, and we have privacy policies that we make sure that if anybody wants to opt out, there are a variety of mechanisms in which they can do that, and we will remove and eliminate that data and make sure that we respond and never use it again. Part of what we're doing now is we've gone through harvesting of all our digital assets and all of our data elements and where we're holding that stuff so that we can, in fact, scrub it, redact it. If, in fact, a consumer subscriber wants to be anonymized, we will do it. And then last question about your current role. What are your joys of your job? I got to admit, I love what I do. I have no trouble waking up in the morning and working through the entire day and not miss a beat. The challenges and the joys, I think, is more around mentoring my staff. Um, I find that giving feedback, um, encouraging them to do things, looking for their strengths and focusing on their weaknesses in terms of what additional help could they get to get better at their careers and their jobs. Because I think having a good, strong team around you makes you more successful. Moving towards more overall broad questions about your whole life so far, what's something that you've learned in your journey that you wish you knew before? Wow, that is a great question. I'm not sure. I guess I think I would have liked to have gone into finance. I love the IT portion of it, and I find myself spending a fair bit more time in finance. From a career standpoint, I would have liked to have had a little bit more balance in the finance space. But from a holistic journey perspective, I love the fact that I had kids early, had a family early. I wouldn't change any of that. Probably where I chose to live, I think I would have liked to have lived more in Europe than I would have in the United States. But I really don't know that, given that it's different now. But yeah, I think being closer to family, making the decision to move for the purposes of education, I think was a great idea. But I think what was lost is the family element of it. I think I missed that most. I feel like you've lived a very incredible life and you've experienced so much. So to what or to whom do you credit your success to? I would have to pride my success on the one person that constantly pushed me. It has to be my mom. She really made sure that if it was one thing I did and it was one thing I did right was getting a good education. And I remember the conversation I had with her, she goes, you know, you could lose all kinds of stuff. You could misplace everything. But the stuff that you leave in your head and the stuff that you educate yourself with is what's going to give you the tools to be successful. I'm not trying to set career paths or anything, but to the extent that somebody wants to learn, we as a community have no issues with sharing. And I think that's one thing that our youngsters really ought to do, get clear in your head the kind of career path. Where do you see yourself? And you have to ask yourself the question multiple times. Where do you see yourself three to five from now? And then where do you see yourself five to 10? And if you can draw a straight line between where you stand and where that three to five point is, um, five to 10, then you have a roadmap. But if there's a lot of breaks in that thing, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, if you're going to make some changes, absolutely. Do it quick, do it early. You have nothing but time on your hands. But 
make a plan. You have to have a plan. Ask lots of questions, but at least have a roadmap of here's what you're going to do in the next three to five. You have to have a way forward, otherwise you'll get there, but there'll be a lot of left and right turns. What advice do you have for college students or early professionals that are unsure of what to do career-wise? Find something that you're passionate about and be the absolute very best at it. Don't settle for mediocrity. You've got to be expert. But if you find something that you really like, you will naturally become an expert because you're going to want to do more of it. If you're going to pick a career and make a mistake and you don't like it, switch. You may have invested a lot of time and effort and money in a career path that you may be not so happy with. Get a hold of your mentor, get a hold of friends, family, whoever you think can help you really think it through. But remember, what you're doing is potentially for a very long period of time. If you're not enjoying it, you're not going to be comfortable getting up in the morning and going to work. Had I picked dentistry, I would not be a very happy camper right now. I know that. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Smiley Connection. If you're interested in connecting with Galab Qasim, you can find him on LinkedIn. And if you'd like to learn more about other industries or professions, please feel free to email us at ipnpodcast at ipnonline.net. We'd love to get some feedback and make sure we're delivering content that you all want to consume. But we can't do that unless you let us know what you'd like to hear. And if you're enjoying the episodes so far, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. You can find the podcast in the Smiley Podcast channel on Spotify, Google, and Apple. This episode was written by me and edited by Cassie. Our cover art is designed by Nadia Khan and Shaquille Mohmed. Marketing for the Smiley Connection is carried out by Shaquille, Amber Brani, and their team. Also, thanks to Zoha Moment, who has been managing this huge project from the very beginning, and Farhan Mangiani for his guidance, support, and all of his help along the way. Our intro music is the funky podcast intro by Robert Reed. Other music included in this episode are Realness by Kai Angle, Between by Maiden, Decapod by Andy G. Cohen, Gazing also by Andy G. Cohen, and November also by Kai Angle. The podcast would not have been possible without the teamwork and help from the people who believed in it. And for that, we're grateful.